Good morning, everyone. Thank you. We're going to get started here with our, uh, our catechesis time. Um, before we did, I just thought I might make a, a quick little uh, announcement just in terms of, well, this is like our first sort of like a kickoff here of our catechesis series. We've had two weeks now in our new schedule here in the fall, and, um, but this starts our, our fall series on prayer book spirituality. And just wanted to uh, make clear, uh, uh, yeah, communicate the way in which we're kind of structuring this in terms of our organizational charts. So we're looking at it, we're making an org chart, which has never really happened here in All Souls' history before, and it's still kind of wet cement, and so we're still working it out to make things uh, clear as far as like who does what around here and who's got responsibilities for various things. Um, but Mary, Deacon Mary has taken on the, the sort of domain or the role of community formation ministry uh, leader, and that has a very, uh, a few subdomains within it. Uh, house groups is something that Mary's long been engaged in, and um, we're, I'm very grateful for her work there. Um, but also we thought that catechesis here, what we do here for adult education, so to speak, uh, falls under this, this uh, umbrella of community formation, because I think formation there kind of has a, a dual meaning. There's one of like, you know, forming us into a community, but then also forming the community in a, in a sort of spiritual sense as well. And, and that's what we're trying to do here, kind of give us uh, education and tools, maybe more directed towards our heads, but then with implications for our, our hands and our, our hearts as well. And so uh, Mary and I have been, uh, worked over the summer about kind of sketching out this, um, uh, this series here. Um, uh, but the bulk of it has been done uh, from, from Mary's uh, thinking about how to engage us in, in the prayer book in terms of our own spirituality and how we can utilize this, uh, this, this tool here, this, this technology, this device uh, for our own spirituality. And then uh, Mary and I both are going to be working on getting a team together uh, to help us think about well, what are we going to do in, in, in the, the spring, what are we going to do after um, uh, Christmas, and then hopefully we'll get this, this team together that, which will help us to give shape to our, our, uh, our catechesis time going forwards. So that's a bit what we're doing uh, there on that side. Um, but today we're starting off talking about the prayer book. So I'm gonna pray for us from the prayer book actually, and then talk a little bit about my own experience with it. So here's the collect of the day today, which you'll hear in a little bit. Lord be with you. Let us pray. O merciful Lord, grant to your faithful people pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, Barry, I thought it might be nice just to sort of talk, a, for me to share a little bit about my own kind of personal engagement with the prayer book and how it's impacted my own spirituality and, and my own relationship with God as that sort of leads us off into thinking about how we might utilize this uh, for, our, for ourselves. So um, I've told a few of these stories before and I'll probably tell them again. So, but I'll just kind of share a little bit how, uh, how I came to use the prayer book uh, myself. As many of you know, I was not raised in an Anglican uh, environment at all. I was raised sort of non-denominational Baptist like, like many of us. And um, you know, one thing that was a part of my my upbringing and was a an emphasis on having one's own personal quiet time. You know, you have your your time with God. And as a young teenager, I was kind of like flummoxed about what do I do in my quiet time? And you just sit there and be quiet. And I remember my folks had these uh, uh, our daily bread mailers. And if you ever had got those, this is maybe a little old school. So this is a little like devotional that would end up on the kitchen table oftentimes. So okay, I'd grab that from time to time, and there'd be a little meditation on 
you know, scripture or what have you, but I always kind of felt like I, I'm supposed to do this thing, but I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do during this thing that's supposed to be really important for my own relationship with God. And so when I came in to uh, start attending an Anglican church um, and it was introduced to the, the daily office services here, this is our morning and evening prayer services, which is really a kind of hallmark of Anglican spirituality. It was just like something kind of clicked. It's like, oh, that, that's what you could do. You know, this is a good idea here. And as I sort of looked at the, yes, Brad? Uh, as a early in high school, or sorry, early in college. Yeah, so late teenage years, you know, 18, 19. Which was just last year, in fact. Um, but it just, it just struck me as being eminently reasonable that there would be this sort of structure to one's prayer. There, were, there, were, there was time for praises, there was time for thanksgiving, there was time for engaging with scripture on a, a regular rotation, there was time engaging with the Psalms, there was space for set prayers like the Lord's Prayer and the Collects, and there was time for extemporaneous prayer as well. I mean, don't think Anglicans are, all have to be uh, you know, set there with their prayers. Uh, here's, the, uh, here's the instruction here from the morning prayer service. The officiant may invite the people to offer intercessions and thanksgivings, which means you've got space to say your own thing there if you want to, either in your mind or, or out loud as well. So space both for set prayers and for extemporaneous prayers. And this was just sort of eminently reasonable to me, and it was a, a thoughtful and uh, helpful way, helpful framework for sort of ordering my, my quiet time, my encounters with God. So I found it really personally enriching and still find it very uh, personally enriching. Um, secondly, and this is kind of less in terms of personal piety, but, but also in terms of how I think about ministering to people. Again, I think I've shared this story, but when I was in college doing, uh, doing ministry, doing junior high ministry, we had a large Sunday morning gathering, and you know, every Saturday Sunday morning, we, we'd show up before our time together, and we'd think, you know, what are we gonna do today? And uh, inevitably, we'd throw something together that was like the same thing every single week. We just didn't plan it out. You know, we'd do these games, and we'd do fast songs, and we'd do slow songs, and we'd do a talk, and, and what have you. Um, and as I kind of was in college, and then later on in seminary, uh, getting into thinking about doing ministry, realizing that there was a way of doing the things we do, either on Sunday morning or for all other kinds of services, that was already thought through. It wasn't like I had to make it up on the spot. Someone already, well, some ones, already took a lot of time and effort to think through what are the things we want in a Sunday morning service? What are the things we want in, in, a, in a funeral or in a wedding or in a baptism? And how are these things influenced by our understanding of church history, our understanding of the theology latent in these, um, in these services, and can that then be commended to, to us ministers to utilize these in order to help the people engage with, with God uh, in, a, in a deep and, and meaningful way. And, and in a lot of ways, that was like incredibly freeing to me. Um, rather than being restrictive, it actually was really freeing to find out that, again, someone else kind of thought through this, and, and I can sort of trust that this has been vetted by both the sort of crucible of, uh, of time and, and committees, and it wasn't just me kind of making things up based upon my own um, sort of thoughts about what might be a good thing to do in a particular service. And like if you have any like Hollywood wedding, you know, it's just the prayer book wedding. Like, you know, dearly beloved, yada, yada, yada. That's just straight from the prayer book there. So even like there's like a, a pagan recognition of like the beauty and the aptness of uh, the liturgies that we have here in our, uh, in our prayer book. Um, 
a third kind of benefit that I found, or that I currently, that I still find from the prayer book in my own terms of spirituality is, is, is seeing my relationship with God um, as, as connected to a larger body, both cross-culturally and even cross-chronologically. Uh, so when I uh, sort of realized that the, the prayer book was not just some little personal devotional that I had, but was a book that all kinds of people in North America and Europe and Africa and South America, across the world, have in the prayer book tradition. That was really like, like wow, I'm, I'm, I'm praying similar things here, like this morning, as people across the world are, are praying, both in terms of structure uh, and sometimes in terms of actual content from the colleagues and the lectionary readings as well. Um, and, and that was really striking to me. You know, I, I, I occasionally do your prayers, whatnot, and go on Twitter after that, and someone might post the colic of the day. It's like, well, that person was just praying the prayers that I was praying right now somewhere else in the world. And that was sort of empowering to realize that my prayers are not just my prayers, but actually I'm sharing these prayers with people across the world, and that was really uh, encouraging. Um, but, but also cross-chronologically. So, um, so we have morning and evening prayer, like the bedrock of the daily office there. We also have a noontime prayer and an evening prayer, or a, a nighttime prayer, Compline. Um, and, uh, and these are you know, regular times of days, when, times of the day when one comes to, um, comes to pray and comes to worship God. And this, of course, has a long tradition in the medieval monastic period, going back to the patristics uh, as well, and we'll talk more about history and whatnot. But I had this, uh, this moment um, when I was, uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were going around doing a tour of, of North America and I was in Boston at the time and so went down to, to see, these, um, uh, to see the, these, these documents from, you know, from the pre-Christian times and in the Jewish tradition, Jewish history. And on one of them, and of course it was written in Hebrew, and I, my Hebrew is not that good, but I was looking at the translation. And, and what it was, it was, it was a schedule of prayer services to be used every single day. And, and I thought, well, wow, people for, for thousands of years have been structuring their days in a similar manner as the prayer book structures the day, with prayer services for certain times of the day, morning, midday, afternoon, evening, and, and et cetera. And that helped me to sort of see my, my own spirituality, again, connected not just across the globe, but across time, across thousands of years. Christians and followers of God have been taking set times of the day to come to pray, to worship, and to in, engage with God. Um, and again, that was very uh, encouraging and, and motivating for me. And I, I suppose making me feel, helping me to feel like, again, I'm not just like an isolated individual doing this, but I'm with a bunch of people um, using set forms of prayer at set times of day to pray. And, and then finally, just one more uh, point, if I, if I might, that was, it, uh, this was kind of a, a longer realization. It didn't, didn't happen at first, but has come maybe even in the last, um, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, but it, it really struck me initially when I was kind of getting familiar with the prayer book that, that um, there was a whole chunk here of the book that was the Psalter. That's like, can you see that there? That, that's about all the psalms there. And, and I first sort of thought, like, well, how incredibly redundant. Like, I've got a Bible. <laughs> like, what, what do I need? Why do I have to waste all this paper and, and printing to stick this in, to make my book even fatter and harder to carry around? Um, but I think what I, what, what I realized, and, then, and, and I'm still realizing, is that the, the, the psalms are like the prayer book of the Bible. And so to utilize this prayer book from the Bible 
in our own prayer book communicated to me that the Psalms aren't just um, a repository for doctrine or something like that, but they're actually a tool for me to use to speak with God. And I think I, I realized I kind of had this perspective on scripture, like it's something you go to to just kind of like deduce doctrine, you know, like let me just kind of find the proof text and what have you. And there's doctrine in scripture. I'm a theologian, like I think that's, that's really important. And yet, and yet the Psalms function in a way that's a bit different than that. They're, they're not just giving you ideas about God, not just giving us doctrine, but they're actually tools. They're actually means. They're, 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 they're a way that God has given us to talk to God. And so the way the Psalms even function in the morning evening prayer service, you don't really read it as though you're trying to just like, you know, deduce things. This is actually supposed to be a tool for you to say things to God. And so we say to God, praise the Lord, O my soul, while I live, I will praise the Lord. Indeed, as long as I have my being, I will sing praises unto my God. And when I say that in the context of the prayers, like that I there is me. That, that's my first person word there. God has given me an I in scripture to say to God. And so I'm using God's words in order to praise God. And I'm very grateful that I have this, this tool uh, to utilize um, for my own prayers. And now we're going to hear a bit more about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I want to talk a little bit first uh, just about catechesis in general. And um, I'm sorry that I have to sit down, but I have uh, spinal... Not quite um, spinal stenosis flare up and I can't um, stand a lot right now. But um, so we took a survey, um, I think it was about a year ago, and when we asked a lot of questions about what people were looking for at All Souls. And there were some comments about catechesis. And one of the things that was asked for was more catechesis about Anglicanism that would help us g grow in a deeper appreciation for our tradition. And the other was that people wanted more um, teachings on spiritual formation. Um, so we're kind of approaching this session very much along those lines of formation and education. The other thing is, is that I, my desire is that this feel less like a classroom and more like a sacred learning place. So you notice, I'm not using a screen this morning. Because when you put the screen up, first of all, it really is a lot of extra work for our AV people. But it also, um, you can't see what's behind you. You can't see the altar. And I want this to feel more intimate. I want this to be a place where I'm not just talking, but you're talking to each other. Um, we're not going to have as, quite as much time for that this morning. But um, I, that's really my desire, is that we are a learning community um, in a sacred space. So that's my desire. So instead of a um, slideshow, I have prepared kind of a fancy handout. Um, <laughs> and um, I hope that on this handout you will take notes, because I've left plenty of spaces to take notes. But for those of you who visually need to see where something, where a talk is going, you know, this is an outline also. And it has like all the main points that I really want to cover this morning. I don't think I'm going to get to all of them, but some of them, even if you just read the outline, 
they are kind of, you'll kind of understand where we're going with that without me having to explain a lot. So, um, I'm, Rich is going to pass these out for me, and um, what I would like to do is I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes, and then there'll be a little bit of time left for questions. So if you do have a question, please jot it down on your paper. Um, if we don't have time to get to it, please come to me, email me, anything. I'd be glad to ask it. So as Rich is, I have 50 of these, which I think is almost enough, but maybe if couples could share. Um, and these will also be posted on our catechesis website so that you can go back to them during the week if you want to. Or if you didn't get one for yourself, you could print it out possibly. So while he's passing those out, I'd just like you to take a couple of minutes and turn to your neighbor and just say why you're here this morning and what you hope to gain out of this catechesis um, series. Just really briefly, just kind of a little icebreaker here. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh, somebody got mine. Uh-oh, somebody got mine. Whoops, Rich. Somebody got mine, I think. Well, um, is mine on the bottom? Yeah, this is mine. Okay, great, perfect. Okay, if I could have everybody, I think everybody's got a handout by now, and um, thank you. Okay, so I'm not going to read what's on the sheet, but um, we do, there is a beautiful quote here from John Wesley that I wanted to include. So I've started out with this question, and that's the topic for today, is what is the common prayer book tradition. And um, there's um, a little, a, a couple of books that I've been reading. I, this one quote I thought really put it very well. 
there is something about the Book of Common Prayer that we cannot ignore or dismiss. It is not just a book about God. Rather, it is a book which draws us into an encounter with God. We experience the God who is there, the God who in Jesus saves us from our sins, loves us unconditionally, and calls us into his companionship. The prayer book can be tough on us. It calls us to repent of our sins and amend our lives, to confess the wrongful things we have done and left undone. It bids us to take an honest look at ourselves, to acknowledge our wretchedness and admit we are miserable offenders, but then to go to God asking for forgiveness, knowing that God pardons us more than we desire or deserve. So I hope that through these classes, you are going to grow into an appreciation of the prayer book beyond Sundays and begin to use it in your own prayer life at home. And to this end, you're going to see some boxes at the end of the pews. And when you leave today, if you would like, um, we have a gift to each of you, which is your own prayer book. And one of the reasons why we were able to do this, and I have enough for one per family, um, is because uh, Anglican House Publishers was having this great deal where you could get the prayer books for $10 a piece. They were the first edition. And the first edition has the same text in it, absolutely identical. But there was a problem with the bindings, so um, that's why they were basically having a fire sale on them. So we were able to purchase 50 of them without like really killing our, our budget for the year. But I do ask that when you um, use it at home, be careful with the binding, because it's not, it is a little <laughs> bit, you know. Um, and I'm not careful with bindings. You know, I think I took mine home and did the old <clears throat> like that, which you really should never do with a book, okay? Um, but you can easily repair it with, you know, tape, with like electrical tape or something, okay? Eventually, you might want to buy, you know, a different edition for yourself. Um, some of us have bought these leather-bound ones. They're $44 from Anglican House Publishers, so it's not like a huge, but they're, they open up very nicely for those of us who like to do this, okay? So when you leave today, please take one of those out of the boxes. Don't take them from the pews, because the pews have the, um, the third and fourth editions that are, have more durable bindings. And so what I've done in those boxes back there is I put a little label in there that indicates that these are a gift from the vestry and the clergy of all souls. So you'll know that, that you've got the right one to take home, okay? Great, yes. Sure. I am gonna get to that, Jim. Thank you. <laughs> Believe me, I know that's important. So, okay, so the prayer book, I have some like basically outline ideas of, on this sheet of what I wanted to kind of express that I think is really important about the prayer book spirituality. And the first of one is that it is foundational to Anglicanism. Um, when the Anglican Church was formed during the Reformation, um, this was a time, a period that the context historically for a prayer book was there. Um, first of all, um, the... Um, the printing press had been invented. And many people think that without the printing press, we might not have had a Reformation. Because not only did the printing presses allow Bibles to be printed in English, but they also allowed a vast amount of tracts, Reformational tracts written by 
uh, the reformers to be decimated all over Europe, dis disseminated all over Europe. <laughs> that was a good count. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, um, and we also had this, um, the period of the Renaissance and the rise of the middle class where people were beginning to, to want to think and pray for themselves. And so they wanted a private book. They began to think about worship and prayer um, as not something you did when you went to church, but something you also did at home. So that was another idea that was very key to the Reformation. John Calvin wrote quite a bit in his institutes about how he wanted to bring monasticism into the everyday life of all people. Um, and so that prayer book really helped with that. So um, I, I can't go into a lot of Reformation history here, but the first prayer book was um, issued in 1549, shortly after King Henry VIII's death. And the reason for that is that King Henry VIII was not a reformer. He was Catholic to the core. He just wanted to have his own Church of England that he could be the head of so he could marry and divorce as he wished to. But he had... Um, People in the background, in the wings, Thomas Cremner had spent quite a bit of time on the continent studying with the continental reformers. He was ready to come right in and bring in this new prayer book that would reform worship, but yet still keep its universality and its Catholicity. So that was the key thing he was trying to do with his prayer book. He also um, one of the things about the Reformation was to get the Word of God into the vernacular. And in 1539, there had been a great English Bible that had been published. Uh, the Henry VIII did allow an English Bible to be placed in all the churches in, um, in England. It was kind of a little bit of a joke because he, he burned John Wycliffe at the stake and wanted to make sure that, or made sure that it happened. It was like a little bit more complex than that. But he said, no Wycliffe Bible. So instead, they have the great Bible, which was Coverdale. But the little tiny secret was is that a lot of it was from Wycliffe's Bible. <laughs> but um, anyway, so the 1549 used the text from this um, Coverdale Bible, including the Coverdale Psaltery. Um, OK, I didn't quite say that right either. but. Um, and that is, um, the Psalms were translated in a way that they could be sung in church and had that poetic value um, that you won't find, like if you open your Bibles, you won't find, the, the Psalms are more of a Hebrew translation, more of a strict translation. A lot of the translations that we have don't have that, um, that meter and one of the things about our ACNA prayer book is that we have reincorporated that Coverdale Psalter, which is really, really important. So it was first issued in 1549, and there were, um, then it was issued again throughout the Reformation, 1553, um, which was more of a, um, a, some would say more of a Zwinglian um, prayer book, whereas the 1549, uh, Cramner retreated, Re, um, retained more of his Calvinistic idea of Eucharist, which is that it is spiritually um, given to us um, as a spiritual real presence rather than a bodily real presence, but not just a symbol. 
And then in 1559, uh, 1552, when Queen Mary took over, that book was abolished. Uh, the Catholic faith, um, the Roman Catholic faith re re returned to England. And then in 1559, when Elizabeth came to the throne, another prayer book was issued. And that was more or less a, um, a compromise between the 1549 and the 1553. And then the successive ones are very much patterned after the 1559 uh, culminating. We had the English Civil War, so we had a couple of editions before that. And then in 1662, after the English Civil War, when Anglican Church once more became the State Church of England, when the Puritans lost that Civil War, the 1662 was issued. And that is still the official prayer book of the Church of England. That is not, they have common worship, but that is not what's actually authorized by um, Parliament. And the 1662 is still widely used in England. If you watched um, any of the um, services for Queen Elizabeth, um, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, if you want to talk about Anglican pageantry, it was all there. Um, services from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. So that is the classic Book of Common Prayer. Yeah, I'm just trying to get through all this. <laughs> um, so um, anyway, so the prayer book is, as the English church, the idea of the prayer book was that it would be in the vernacular of the people. So as um, England conquered lands uh, with uh, the empire, um, there, the Church of England spread, and in 1789, the American Book of Common Prayer was issued. So the pattern really was, is after freedom from um, the uh, England as a colony and became their own nations, they then produced, they became their own province of the Church of England, and they produced their own prayer book. And the first instance of that is the um, 1789 American Book of Common Prayer. Now today we have um, Book of Common Prayers in um, Kenya, in New Zealand, in Australia. Each province has their own Book of Common Prayer. And this is very much of a Reformation principle, which I've put here in terms of always reforming. Um, that um, that the prayer book needs to be in the language of the people. And that language changes. It needs to fit the cultural context of the people. And so each, so for instance, in the prayer book in Kenya, there is a prayer to the fathers, because that's something that's very important in Kenyan um, culture, is they, they revere the people who have passed on ab above them. And there's nothing um, pagan about that. We also believe in the communion of saints, but it's just a little bit more specific in their prayer books. So, but each of these prayer books follows the form of the 1662 and mostly the theological content. Now, in 1979, the Americans issued a new prayer book, and it was felt by many, be, I personally think the 79 prayer book was, is a work of art, it, um, it incorporated a lot of the things that we learned about liturgy 
in the 20th century and all the liturgical renewal, going back to the sources. Um, it is a beautiful book. But actually, if you compare some of the prayers to the prayers now in our ACNA prayer book, you can see how some of the theology was watered down just a little bit. And there was a lot of people in the Episcopal Church at the time that really objected to the 1979 prayer book. Some of it, I think, was maybe they just didn't want to change. But some of it, I think, was based on some good theological grounds. So when the ACNA came into creation in um, 2008, one of the first things that the first Archbishop, Bishop Duncan, wanted to do was to have our own prayer book. And there was a few reasons for that. One of them was when you buy a prayer book from the Episcopal Church, you are actually funding the, um, the pension program that all of the priests in the ACNA no longer were a part of because they were cut off from it because they left the ACNA. But there was just a kind of a thought like, well, now we are our own province. We want to have our own prayer book. But more importantly, um, there are a lot of people in the ACNA that really loved the 1928 prayer book and really loved the 1662 prayer book and really missed that, having that. And so our ACNA prayer book is um, a beautiful kind of gathering together of all those different sources from 1662, 1928, and the 79 prayer book, and creating this prayer book that is uniquely ours, that is an fully orthodox prayer book, and yet retains all of that beautiful language. Um, we have two services. We have two Eucharistic services, and one of them is um, more of your traditional language you would find. It's more like the 1662 prayer book. And then the one that we call the reformed or the renewed ancient text is more like actually um, right to in the 1979 prayer book. And so we are kind of switching off using those two. Um, and then the other thing, as I mentioned before, that the ACNA prayer book did is that it also gave us um, the, the new Coverdale Bible. So just a few things that I would like to go over really quickly. And first of all, um, and I'll get into some of this. I'll be able to talk about this more when I do my session on the Eucharist. But the things that the prayer book are is that it's ancient in its liturgy. Uh, do not ever think that liturgy was something that was embedded in the third or fourth century when Constantine came to the throne and he wanted to make um, everything look much more majestic, etc. Our liturgy goes back to basically the Old Testament um, in its pattern of worship. Um, it, the, the Jewish... Uh, the Jews always had a liturgy. That is how God, it's a sacramental way of communicating and worshiping with God that God put in place even with the sacramental um, system. And when you get to Jesus' time, you have in the synagogues, you have liturgical worship, you have lectionaries. Um, the Jews gathered at mealtimes around liturgies. Um, uh, alcohol, uh, you know, bread and wine and meat was always a part of the liturgical um, communion with God in meals, which were meal. They weren't just considered like table meals, like you sat down and you had a meal with each other, but they saw them the same way we see our Eucharist. They were having a meal with God, and so it was vertical, and then they were having a meal with each other. 
And so you see in, um, you have documents like the Didache in the middle of the first century, which have the very beginnings of Eucharistic prayers. And then I have this quote here from Justin Martyr on your outline, which outlines a form of worship, a content, which we very much follow. It is a gathering. It is the reading of the word. It is prayer. And then it is bringing forth that which has been blessed, which are the Eucharistic elements, and sharing in communion. And this pattern of worship has continued since he wrote this in 148 in the church. And notice, you'll notice today when we have communion how you see that, that idea of the gathering, the ministry of the word, the ministry of prayer, the ministry of communion, and then being sent out. And that is what Justin describes here. Um, so the Book of Common Prayer was reformational in its worship, but I want you to know that Thomas Cranmer didn't write the Book of Common Prayer, he compiled it. And he used ancient sources that he uncovered, remember, he was a very learned scholar, he knew Latin, he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, and he um, gathered some ancient sources that were no longer being used in the Catholic uh, sacramentaries at that time. There was a Latin, um, it was called the Mass that was widely used. It was a Latin um, mass, and he basically took that mass, rearranged some things, took out some things, but, and then translated it into English, into the, the, the language of the people. So he, he took out everything that he thought did not fit in with reformational worship, such as, you know, uh, well, at that time, praying to the dead, worshiping idols, um, some of the, um, the clerical ideas that, um, that you had this huge division between clergy and laity. The clergy were the ones that were doing all the praying, and so he took out, he made this much more of a communal. So he researched Latin and patristic text. He also borrowed text from continental uh, emerging prayer books from the continent, prayers that uh, different continental reformers had written. And so what he was trying to do was to, to teach people why we worship and to draw them into common prayer together at the same time. So he was really wanting to teach the head but reach the heart with his new prayer book. Um, and in his prayer book... Um, there was a prayer, a collect, that he wrote that was for the, I believe it was the first or second Sunday of Advent, that called on Christians to read, mark, learn, and in Scripture. And so he wanted to and hearts with his prayer book. It's extremely biblical. There are so many biblical texts, allusions, paraphrases in your Bible. Um, I have this big, thick history of the um, American prayer book, which is, we don't have one yet for the ACNA prayer book, but in the back is a six-page index of scriptural references in the prayer book, and it's almost every book of the Bible is referenced. There's an allusion or a paraphrase, etc. So it's extremely biblical. It's also very literary. It has shaped the English language, um, along with the works of Shakespeare and the King James Bible, uh, the Canterbury Tales, Beowulf, these are all very critical um, 
texts that shaped our English language, the Book of Common Prayer is right up there with them. And Bob Roberts is going to be coming to us uh, in November and talking about how the poetry of the Book of Common Prayer shapes us. So um, Cramner's vision was very formational, as I've already indicated. He wanted there to be a prayer book that would bring people together, um, that they could share common prayer together, and that this prayer book would form them as a community. And that's what my prayer is, that out of these um, sessions that we have, that we will be more formed as a community by our daily use of the prayer book. He wanted to spiritually empower the lay people. He wanted them to know that they could pray themselves at home and that they could pray in their own language, that they didn't need a priest to pray for them. He wanted, as I mentioned, to catechize the lay and also the clergy. You have to understand the clergy in um, 16th century England, some of them didn't even know the Lord's Prayer so, uh, by heart. So they also they had very little biblical knowledge, many of them. So he um, actually wrote uh, sermons for them, too, to preach on Sundays. He didn't just trust his prayer book to do the job. And then this idea of that James also mentioned that monasticism uh, would come in for everyone. And that a framework for a life of prayer. So um, I want to read this last quote, and it is from Bishop Benjamin Tutu. And this is really alluding to the idea of the prayer book as a common prayer. And he says this, um, it is a wonderful thing to pray, and it is a more wonderful thing to pray together. God loves diversity, and God loves unity. And when the two merge, unity in diversity and diversity in unity, then something truly miraculous can occur. This is at the heart of common prayer. Different people of all types coming together and embracing God. So thank you for listening. We're going to have to start gathering for our worship. So any questions? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's scary. Yes, I know, which is one of the reasons we're all kind of holding our breaths about the Episcopal Church if they issue, because right now the 79 prayer book is very orthodox in its content. But there is a process. I don't, nobody can just, a province can't just produce a book on its own. There is, in the Church of England, they have liturgical consultations that provinces need to consult. But, you know, we're going to see some changes, I am sure, as parts of the Anglican Communion stray more and more away from the teachings of the Bible and being influenced by culture around us. And that, again, is another reason why we wanted to, you know, produce our own ACNA, Book of Common Prayer, which we believe. I mean, already many people are praising it outside even our, um, our province for its literary quality, for the Coverdale Psalter. So I think it's going to become a new classic. I really, they did an excellent job. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what they did. They updated the language where it was specifically archaic. So 
they didn't, they didn't just like retranslate everything. They took the original and then they updated where it was archaic. They also did a little work with some of the pronouns using they in a few places um, rather than he or she. Um, but yeah, it, it, and also, um, oh, I have it here in my notes, what else they did. Um, uh, but yeah, they did, it was mainly to take out some of the, um, yeah, where the, when the language is archaic or unclear, and also when the Coverdale's translation was inaccurate about Hebrew, and to provide gender-neutral phrasing for some references to human beings, and it updates the original for contemporary use among people for whom, you know, the King James in the 1662 prayer book is just not accessible. So, yeah, that's what it did. But it's beautiful. Sometimes compare what you have in your prayer book to what might be in something like the ESV. And it's remarkable in terms of the poetic impact. I mean, it is really there. It's beautiful. So, yeah. So take your prayer books home. Start reading those psalms from the prayer book rather than your Bibles. And next week we will talk about uh, a template for using your books in daily prayer. Thank you. <laughs>